This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today you'll be listening to a very special two-part discussion episode of the podcast. We'll be starting out by talking with Kristen Mink, the awesome teacher and mother who confronted Scott Pruitt about what she calls his environmental crimes. Then we'll be having a discussion of the civility debate and disruptive protest with Matthew Rodriguez of Into Magazine. Now let's jump right in with Kristen. Thanks so much for coming on. It's my pleasure to be here, Jordan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to speak with you. So as many of our listeners have probably seen in the viral video, you confronted then EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt while he was eating lunch at a DC restaurant. Since then, Pruitt has resigned from his post, citing, quote, the unrelenting attacks on me personally mm -hmm. as his reason. Right off the bat, Kristen, congratulations. Pretty <laughs> awesome that you were the straw that broke the anti-environmentalist camel's back. What pushed you to confront him in the first place? Yeah. Well, first, I do I do want to say, you know, of course, we'll never know how much of a straw I was there. You know, I want to give a lot of credit to all of the, you know, the whistleblowers, the environmentalists, the activists. You know, there were so many people who have just been working on getting him out for so, so long. Um, so I was very happy to uh, be part of those unrelenting attacks, very happy to, uh, you know, certainly make his make his week worse and <laughs> to pile on top of all those efforts that had laid all that all that groundwork there uh, leading up to it. But what pushed me to approach him really was, you know, I mean, I do consider myself an activist in a lot of ways. But in that moment, I do think that it was more my motherly instincts that kicked in. You know, I mean, I saw this man who is literally trading on, you know, my child, our children's future uh, in order to, uh, you know, line his own pockets, uh, extract favors, give favors to friends and so on. Um, and he's, he's trading on our air and our water and the next generation, you know, immediately felt like I want to have some words with this man. You use the term environmental crimes. Could you tell us more about what that means? Yeah, I mean, he was appointed head of the Environmental Protection Agency, and he did not do any protecting of the environment. Instead, he was using, he was using his post to hand out favors to polluters, uh, to people who make more money when they're allowed to pollute more. So that I consider a crime against the environment, a crime against humanity, really. Um, so he was doing things like, you know, rolling back legal limits for air pollution and for water pollution. Um, he was, you know, working on getting pipelines approved that are going to endanger people's drinkable water. So, you know, it was just this, this pile of decisions that he was making that were purely for the benefit of himself and his friends and were are significantly damaging the environment. And, and we're really at a tipping point when we look at climate change. We need somebody in the EPA who's going to be acting fast, acting now to stem this bleed out that we, that we have going in terms of climate change. Um, we don't have time to waste 
that's exactly what he's doing. He, not only is he is he wasting time, but he's he's making it more difficult for everybody else to do what they need to do to do what they're trying to do to protect the environment. You know, he's denying scientists a voice in the EPA, and they're they're the most important voice, of course. Uh, and you know, scientists have left the EPA by the hundreds. Um, he's making it difficult to incorporate scientific findings into decisions that are being made at the EPA. He, he's basically, you know, science is standing in the, in the way of what he wants to accomplish, which is, you know, which is, uh, you know, self-serving and the serving of corporate interests. Um, and so he's, he's eliminating science. So he's, he's just damaging the environment in so many terrible ways. And, and I, I'm saying he, but really he's a stand-in here for the Trump administration, because as we know, you know, as I'm sure we'll get to, as soon as he left, we've got Andy Wheeler, who's doing the exact same thing. And if he was to leave, it would be somebody else doing the exact same thing, because this is this is a Trump agenda thing. A question I think a lot of folks are wondering is how Scott Pruitt got confirmed in the first place. Republicans actually had one defector, Susan Collins, and one senator not voting, John McCain, which means that Democrats could have brought Pruitt down to only 50 votes if it had not been for two Senate Democrats voting to confirm him. Why did the Senate Democratic Caucus not stand united against Pruitt? Why did Chuck Schumer not successfully whip the vote? You know, I've been surprised by a lot of things that have been able to get through. I know that we have um, some Democrats who, you know, they're playing to a more moderate base or even a more conservative base. Um, I do think that the environment um, should be a nonpartisan issue because we all breathe the same air, we all drink the same water, um, our kids are going to have to inhabit this planet and their kids and so on. So people shouldn't be having to be pressured by their bases. We should have had, you know, everybody should have been voting against Scott Pruitt. But, you know, I guess I guess it's a sign of the times that we have, um, you know, we do have some Democrats that feel like, the, the, you know, their priority was what they felt like they had to do to keep their constituents' votes instead of, you know, speaking up and speaking out to you know, tell their constituents, explain to their constituents why Scott Pruitt would be bad for them, why the way things are going with the deregulation at the EPA is bad for them and their children. You know, they, they voted along conservative lines. It's really unfortunate. Do you think that Democrats in Congress, especially in the Senate, since the Senate is the only chamber that votes on cabinet nominees, were doing enough prior to Pruitt's resignation to hold him accountable? Absolutely not. So Scott Pruitt was in the news because of his corruption, because of his misspending of tax dollars, because of his really ridiculous, um, over-the-top uh, scandals. He wasn't in the news because of how bad he is for the environment. And that's a huge mistake, because now that sets us up for the situation we have with Andy Wheeler, where he's just as bad for the environment. And this is the real problem for American people, for the world. But he doesn't come with those same, you know, press-worthy scandals. And so, you know, now we see we see already that the EPA has is is already fading out of the press, is fading out of the media. So the the focus should have been at least equally on Scott Pruitt's environmental crimes. I think that that should be uh, top of mind for everyone, so that now when we get the next guy, we can say he's doing the exact same thing. But that that wasn't how it went. So, looking at your confrontation with Pruitt, you have been criticized a lot in the media, even by some Democratic Party leaders, for being quote-unquote uncivil, <laughs> because, as the Washington Post put it, we should let the Trump team eat in peace. Oh my goodness. How do you respond to these accusations <laughs> of incivility? Well, Jordan, I think I hear a little bit of a chuckle in your voice, too. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm glad, because... Um, I think that that whole discussion is a total waste of time. Um, 
And I think it's a deliberate attempt to to avoid the real issue at hand, which, of course, the real issue at hand is the environment. The real issue at hand is what the Trump administration, um, you know, is is doing to people. So, you know, and not not just the environment, of course, we've seen people, um, you know, standing up and, and approaching other representatives for other about other issues and for other reasons. And then you hear the same complaint, mostly from Republicans, but also some from Democrats about, oh, people need to just be able to eat. Like, we're beyond that. So, the issues are what's important. If you don't want to be confronted out at meals, then don't make decisions that harm the rest of us. These people chose a profession where their job is to work for us, for the public. Um, we are their constituents, um, or they were appointed by our representatives. So our tax sellers are paying their salaries. We are the people that they need to care about most. They should be hearing from us. It's not like Scott Pruitt was about to take a meeting with me in his office. So these folks should expect to hear from us. And um, I certainly want to don't want to see the Democrats piling on and engaging in these conversations when they're so obviously a straw man argument. You know, we have President Trump, who is the least civil person you could possibly imagine, you know, heading the Republican Party now. And so to hear them saying like, oh, people need to be civil, they obviously don't care about civility. They elected this man as their president and they're backing him, you know, despite everything that he's continues to say and do on a daily basis. It's not civility that they care about. It's avoiding the issues is what they care about. I think our listeners can quite easily accept that as the motivation for the GOP, but not necessarily for our side. Why do you think that the Washington Post, the New York Times, Democratic leadership, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, are so adamantly against disruptive protest in the first place. I think that it's a strategic mistake on the part of Dems and our Democratic leadership. Dems want to think, oh, we're better than that. We're above that. Well, I think that we, we need to stop wasting time on that because clearly that's not what wins elections. This whole holier-than-thou attitude is not helpful. Look, look who you know America elected. And when I say America, it was only a fourth of America. So it doesn't get people out to the polls. It doesn't get people to vote. We are better than the Republicans because of our stance on issues. Let's keep it to that. So you've talked a bit about Trump's nominee to replace Pruitt as EPA administrator. What can our listeners do to stop him from being confirmed? I think that keeping the EPA's policies in the news is going to be really important. For example, they're trying to put through a, um, a censored science policy now. That's not what they're calling it. They're calling it something with the word transparency in it, which is just completely ridiculous, which, which essentially says that they can't, that the EPA can no longer use data built from, um, people's personal health records, which really just eliminates tons of valuable science that are used to help shape health policies. Um, and help protect us. They're saying that it has something to do with transparency. It obviously has nothing to do with transparency. That doesn't. There's no connection there whatsoever. It's just another. It's another attempt. It's another attempt to take science out of the equation in order to let the EPA heads and the Trump administration make whatever policies they do and don't want to make. So policies like that need to need to stay in the media. Need to stay in the news. But I do think that the most important thing. Um, you know, we, we can maybe, uh, you know, hamper their progress on certain policies, but we're not going to get um, somebody heading the EPA who's going to be responsible for as long as we have this administration and this Congress. So I do think that the focus right now needs to be on these November midterms. I think that these are the most important midterms um, of our lifetime. There just needs to be a huge, unprecedented, massive voter registration, voter turnout movement leading up into these November midterms because we have to get something back, at least the House, in order to put a check on this administration.
as you kind of noted there, the big focus this year is on the House, and in one sense, it's very obvious why. It's simply the easier chamber of Congress to flip. But it's also notable in the ideological sense, because the Senate Democratic Conference is highly conservative, and the three Democratic candidates likely to flip Senate seats blue this year are all conservative. The same kind of conservative Democrats who joined the GOP in confirming Jeff Sessions, Neil Gorsuch, Scott Pruitt, and many other Trump cabinet and judicial nominees. What can we do to hold Democrats in the upper chamber accountable, especially when it comes to the environment, which has been an issue where red state Democrats have time and time again proudly stood against the EPA and progressive policies? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I do think, though, that it still comes down to um, empowering constituents, their voices, and their votes. Because I do think that if you are to hear from all Americans that most people want clean air, most people want clean water, most people think that families belong together, um, most people want the things that most liberal Democrats want, you know, empowering people to speak up, you know, talking to their representatives, contacting their representatives, attending, attending protests, attending town halls, and then most importantly, getting to the polls. I think that that will make a difference in the Senate as well. So a relevant term I've heard progressive candidates using is Green New Deal. What would your vision of a Green New Deal look like? I mean, I haven't worked out all of my details, I'll say. But I, but I do think that what needs to happen is that, um, that climate reform and climate justice needs to be tied closely to economics and job growth. Um, there are a lot of people in, um, you know, polluting industries that are going to be, you know, probably losing their jobs, you know, in the coming years. And all of those people deserve to be making a living wage, deserve to be able to provide for their families. Um, the answer is not to pretend that those businesses are not on the decline, which is what the Trump administration is doing. Um, the answer is to get those folks training um, and uh, help them build build new businesses, new infrastructure that are going to be positive for the environment and produce clean energy. So I think tying all of those things together is really is really important. Those should not be, you know, people having jobs and, uh, you know, creating clean energy, those two things should not be in opposition for each other. There's a great opportunity for those to be intertwined. And I think that the Trump administration, what they're doing, which is setting them up as those as, as though those two are opposed to each other, is hugely de detrimental and hugely short-sighted. We're still in the primary cycle right now, which is what I consider the prime time to get Democratic candidates to adopt progressive policies to push them to the left on issues like the environment. For folks in states that haven't yet held their primaries, what questions should they be asking their Democratic candidates? Um, first of all, I think that they should certainly not be taking any money from fossil fuel industries. And there's already many candidates who are, who are making that pledge, uh, but also many who are not. So I think that that's their starting point. But I think then, you know, when they're, you know, moving into office, they need to be promising to make this a top priority. This has to be a top urgent priority for them that they're going to be pressuring the EPA to reinstitute some of the regulations that protect the American people and protect the earth, protect our animals, all of that good stuff. Um, a lot of those policies need to get put back in place as quickly as possible because there's damage being done right now. We need to repopulate the EPA, repopulate the EPA with scientists, make science again the foundation of how these policies are crafted and maintained. And I also want to see them um, pushing policies related to what I was just talking about, um, tying together job growth with, um, with green energy. What can our listeners do right now in terms of both electoral politics and non-electoral politics to fight for environmental justice? 
Okay, so election-wise, I'll talk about that first because I, I do think that that's the top priority. I think that doing whatever you can to to help people get elected in some of those swing states. So, you know, you can you know go to swing left, and you know there's there's tons of different get out the vote organizations um, that will help you find a place that you can phone bank for, or um, you know send emails for, or you know finding ways for you to to help you get in touch with friends and family who are in the area. Um, there's lots of ways to help push some of those swing states left. So I think that is a big part of what we need to be doing right now, everybody. So that's now that's assuming, of course, that you're already in a liberal-leaning area. Um, if you're not, then you should go outside and start knocking on doors right now. In terms of non-electoral things, I think that's where that's where you're contacting your your representatives to talk about specific legislation um, that you want to see and that you don't want to see, expressing your views about climate justice um, and about climate change. Um, I think just staying in touch with your with your elected representatives is super important, as well as making this a conversation that just happens in your social circles. Um, so, you know, like Chris Hayes was saying, this isn't something that people want to see on TV. It's not something that's top of mind. I think, you know, maybe part of that is, is because it's so scary. You know, that's that's part of it for me. Um, but I think that making the environment and what's happening with the EPA and what's happening to our climate, making that part of dinner table conversation, party conversation, you know, it doesn't sound very sexy, but it needs to be something that is top of mind for everyone that everybody sees as, you know, this is a fact of life of something that's happening right now that's super important. What are you doing about it? Here's what I'm doing about it. You know, even if it's just to get people thinking more about how, you know, what they're going to say to their representatives, how they're going to vote all that kind of thing. Everybody needs to be feeling much more engaged on the subject. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We here at Millennial Politics admire you a lot. And I'm so glad we got a chance to speak with you. It's my pleasure. And you know, I, you know, when I stood up and talked to Scott Pruitt that day, I do think that the foundation had really been laid from me seeing uh, so many other protesters and activists and just ordinary citizens on video who stood up and took the opportunity when they saw, you know, a government official. And so in my mind, there was no question because of seeing those previous people. I was like, oh, this is my right. This is my responsibility. I'm going to do it. And I hope that um, your listeners and anybody who saw that video, that I was just another person to help them feel more, more empowered when that moment comes. Everybody has the right. Everybody has a responsibility. Take a video. Absolutely. We hope that all of our listeners really take that to heart, take your lead on this. And we will be continuing this discussion of civility and disruptive protest with Matthew Rodriguez right after this break. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government. And you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day, 
I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. Welcome back to the podcast, folks. Thanks for sticking with us. Now I'll be speaking with Matthew Rodriguez, staff writer at Into Magazine, about the civility debate and the importance of civil disobedience in the Trump era. Thanks so much for joining me on the pod, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, we're super excited to have you. Now, Matthew, a lot has happened since this whole civility debate started. What kicked it off in the first place? The kind of big debate that's been happening around civility kind of started with um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the current press secretary. Once again, we don't know if she'll be press secretary by the time this airs. Who knows? Um, But uh, the current press secretary, um, she went out to a a restaurant in Lexington, Virginia. It's called The Red Hen. And when she went there, the restaurant, as a private business, uh, refused to serve her because of her role in the Trump administration. And um, after that, a big conversation started. The Washington Post basically did a piece that was like, let the Trump team eat in peace and stuff like that. And it was basically calls for like what it means to be civil to people with different political beliefs than yourself. And um, that obviously got a lot of pushback as well um, once that piece was published in a platform as big as the Post and kind of every outlet had their own spin on it about what does it mean to act civilly toward someone specifically who is of a different political ideology than you, but also more specifically um, what it means to act civil toward the Trump administration, right? That, that is a pretty good explanation. There also have been a few other protests of Trump administration officials. Yesterday we saw a woman confront Scott Pruitt in a restaurant to which he didn't say anything and walked away. Well, we also saw the Homeland Security uh, Secretary. She was, re- she was refused service, uh, ironically enough, Alanis Morissette-style in a Mexican <laughs> food restaurant. And obviously, um, you know, this was during the time of children and you know children being interned in ice camps so there's a that was the another debate was like do you deserve mexican food if you are actively interning people i don't want to say just from mexico from all people who are at the border but a lot of people at that border are from mexico but that is by no means the only population that is there i want to make sure we have the terms of this conversation defined. I think a really problematic thing is that in basically every conversation, the right, the Republican Party gets to not only determine what we talk about, but how we talk about it. Why were the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other liberal, generally considered liberal or centrist news outlets so quick to stand against the protesters and with the Trump administration? What's their motive? Well, there's a few things here, right? It's that the people who are expressing these opinions in the Washington Post or the or the Times, they may be people who are writing op-eds. And op-ed gets thrown around a lot, but it actually does stand for opposite the editorial. And so it's supposed to be for rooms where like the editorial board doesn't want to say this so that someone can come in and, and give an editorial and say their piece. I think what caught a lot of people off guard was that it was the Washington Post editorial board who released the let the trump team eat in peace uh 
piece uh, article. Um, so it was the editorial board saying that. Um, so there's a lot of different issues here, right? First, we have the ongoing issue of access journalism, which is um, basically saying that like there are journalists who want to keep the peace with the Trump administration so that they can continue getting access to them, right? So the Washington Post is not only one of the national papers of record, it is also the paper that covers Washington, D.C. Um, most closely, let's say, except for, I mean, it's in battle with the New York Times, but most closely because they're, they're local. So on some level, people were saying like, it's obvious that the Washington Post has to put something like this forward because they want to continue to have access to the Trump administration. They can't make enemies of them, right? And that's the same criticism that people like Maggie Haberman come up against, that like Maggie Haberman ref often refuses to use the word lie. She'll use like untruth or dishonesty, but won't say Trump lied. And so people are saying that you're, you know, trying to sugarcoat things so that you can continue so that one day Maggie Haberman will write her book and like that will come out and stuff like that and it'll up her profile. That's, and I'm not saying that I'm saying that, I'm saying that that's what, is happening in the landscape. The other thing is obviously is that we live in a country that really highly prioritizes respectability politics. And when I say respectability politics, for those who are listening, it, you know, for those who don't know the term, um, it is exactly like it sounds. It means a way of operating with other people that is wholly respectful and always, you always have to come back to like listening to the other person and stuff like that. And respectability politics really comes into play when we're talking about people of color and queer people, because so often people have tried to silence POC and queer people by saying, well, you're not talking to me respectfully, you're shouting. But then again, we're shouting for our lives, right? So like when Black Lives Matter protests and asks you not to shoot Black people, they're literally shouting because they could die. And when queer people are shouting for rights or during the AIDS crisis, we were shouting to not die in the street. Like we were shouting because our lives were at stake. So Republicans and a lot of right-leaning people will often return to politics of respectability to silence queer and POC voices to say like, I don't have to listen to you because you're acting out or you're not being respectful. And that kind of gets me into, you know, the racialized nature I think has been really demonstrated by the Democratic Party's response to this. Particularly, Maxine Waters stood with the protesters, and then can you tell us what the Democratic establishment did to her? Well, sure. I mean, when Maxine Waters was basically, and Maxine Waters has been, you know, so act so vocal against the Trump administration, and she stood with the protesters. And when that happened, eventually the Democratic establishment kind of telling her to play nice and to stop to stop going for the Trump administration, which obviously has so many racial undercurrents to it, because at one at one time you're you're telling a black woman to stop talking, and then you're also kind of assigning aggressiveness to her, which is something that happens to people of color, specifically black people, a lot. Saying, you know, he or she was acting aggressively when really they're just speaking. Something I think is very notable is that in response to calling for people to protest Trump officials at gas stations, at restaurants, wherever. Maxine Waters has received death threats. Recently, there's been a really stunning viral video of her um, giving a speech where she says, if you shoot me, shoot straight, because there's nothing like a wounded animal. And I think that speaks to just the gravity of the situation, where a Black woman is receiving death threats on the regular, has to cancel events, but the Democratic Party has nothing to say. 
But when this black woman says, hey, protest fascists, they're like, oh, no, what are you doing? Why are you going, why are you going so far? The real issue with that for me is that like black women are the backbone of the Democratic Party, right? We've known that for a while. And in the last few elections, it's black women who continue to, I mean, black women voted for Hillary, I think, believe it was 96%. Black women were responsible for Doug Jones in, in Alabama, right? And so we know more and more that like black women are the backbone of the party. And yet here we have one of the most visible Democrats who is a black woman who is out there speaking and the party is silencing her and then when, or attempting to silence her. And then when there are actual uncivil threats made against her, um, there's, you know, silence in the room. So really it's like, how much are we showing up for the people who are, being the most outspoken. So let's let's dig deeper into why these Trump officials are being protested. This is an administration that came into office against political correctness. Why is there this divide between how they treat people and how they should be treated? I want to like so when we when we say that tr the Trump administration is the administration against political correctness, it's so funny because to me you know, political correctness is about treating people with respect and civility. And in a lot of ways, Trump ran on this um, brashness, like he says what he means, or he says what he's thinking, like, it's so refreshing to see this honesty, blah, blah, blah. And like, really, people were just happy that he was saying really inflammatory racist things. And then it's interesting, as you were pointing out that like, now, they are asking for stability. It's like the people who are putting children in cages are asking for stability. The people who refuse to even talk about gun control are asking for civility. It's clear to me and other people that when they're asking for civility or the, the right to be out in the world existing without being judged, they're actually asking for silence from the other people, right? So that's, it's a coded term, it's a coded word that actually means, I would like it if you would stop talking. So it's not a call for civility so much as it's a call for obedience, a call for putting your head down and, and, and taking it. You know, I wrote a piece recently called Civility is Not Queer. And one of the things that I wrote in it, and it wasn't the main point, so I kind of moved on from it, but I think it's really important to talk about now, is that in America, it is okay for white people to go everywhere and exist everywhere. And one of the reasons that the Sarah Huckabee Sanders thing stuck so much in the national consciousness is, it, is because it was about a white person who was being told that there was a space that they did not have access to. And white people in America are not used to that. We know because we have a history of slavery, segregation, mass incarceration, there are places that black people cannot go. And when we talk about the police force in America, police actually dictate public space. So they're in public space and they say, you, what are you doing in this neighborhood? You do not belong here. They are talking about how, who belongs in what public space. When we're talking about at the pride parade, the big debate about no police at pride is because police are about who cannot be in what public space. And that often means black queer people at pride parades, like they will be targeted and told you do not belong in this space. So that's, that's kind of what's at issue here is that 
Sarah, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, a white woman of immense privilege in America, was told that she couldn't go into a certain public space and white people do not stand for that. The racial dynamics here and how they mesh with partisan politics, I think, is really interesting because, as you mentioned, Black women really are the base of the Democratic Party. We've seen at least lip service given to that post-Alabama, but then we have seen party leadership throw Maxine Waters under the bus in something, in, you know, a, a year where they're really trying to run against Trump, where a lot of establishment Democrats don't have a huge message beyond we're not Trump. Why does the racial dynamic here trump the partisan dynamic for folks like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer? Well, we were talking before about access journalism, and there may actually be this kind of phenomena of access politics, because I think at the end of the day, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, like they, I feel, they feel that like they have to work with Trump. And, and so anything that will get Trump angrier, Democrats works not in their favor because they have to quote unquote work across the aisle. The thing is, we're not just talking about Republican ideology. We're not talking about small government. We're not talking about lower taxes, right? Like right now, when we're talking about Republican platform, we're also talking about a white nationalist ideology um, that makes no room for people who are not white, straight, cis, blah, blah, blah. And so it's really becoming harder to talk about that because those two things are conflated and Democrats, a lot of Democrats are trying to act like, oh, well, it's just working with Republicans, Maxine Waters, you've been in Congress for so long, you've worked with Republicans, like you need to play nice. But like, we're not just dealing with, like I said, small government, less taxes or whatever. We're dealing with white nationalist ideology, ICE tweeting out pictures of people who work at ICE that clearly have like iron cross tattoos on their body. Um, it's not normal. But, but this idea that these are just differences of opinion, why do you think that is so commonplace? Well, I mean, as much as like, we try to, I mean, I, I think that the Democratic Party is getting a lot of flack right now for their inability to kind of deal with the exact thing that you're talking about. Because at the end of the day, the Democratic Party is still very white, even though a lot of people of color vote Democrat, the Democratic Party is still very white. And um, that's still that, you know, they still at some level embrace the respectability politics that I talked about before, right? Because as white people in America, they are taught about how to keep their privilege and how to make sure that it is not threatened. And so when you look at the Democratic Party leadership right now, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, most of them are white. And so they still carry white values. They're responsible to their constituents, yes, and their constituents may not be solely white, but they still hold those values. So it's very hard to butt up against that. So this brings us to a greater point about what resistance needs to look like under Donald Trump. For starters, do you think that these acts of civil disobedience against the Trump administration about denying them space where these white bodies think they're entitled to space, do you think that's effective? You know, I think it is long term, but I also say that like everyone has their own way to um, protest. I am someone who believes that like and I will also say, like, I don't know what the leadership at Red Hen looks like, but, like, if you are a private business owner, I mean, Republicans are the fucking party of 
private businesses and privatization. So it's actually really ironic that they would be mad at a private business for carrying out business the way they see fit. Everyone who at whatever their domain is, however they can, should protest. And I especially believe that like people who have that type of power in a certain domain, like a private business, should be using their manifested power to fight back against the Trump administration however way they can. I, as a brown person, I don't always put my body on the line. I do a lot of writing online. I try to raise consciousness. I try to talk about ideas. But like, obviously in America, black and brown bodies are more um, prone to be criminalized and made as part of like, you know, the mass incarceration system. So I do, I have gone to protests. I don't always put my body on the line as much as I expect white people to because they will get away with things more because they're more, they're allowed to be, like I said earlier, they're allowed to be in all public spaces. But I do think that it's important for people like Red Hen to continue doing what they're doing. It started a national conversation for a reason. Like Sarah Huckabee Sanders was mad and she, and you know, she was mad, like I said, because she expects to be able to go anywhere. And we have to tell people that when you treat other human beings like trash, like garbage, you do not get to go wherever you want. You do not get dinner out in public. Sorry, go to Seamless Girl. Like, absolutely not. So what do you think people need to do right now in response to everything that's going on? What actions can they take? Well, I was talking a little bit before about like, it really depends on your level of privilege, right? Like, I think that if you're in the white community and you have a lot of privilege and you want to send messages to the Trump administration, I think it's very important that you do that because I think that we've seen that this is an administration that is open to white voices. I've made a lot of jokes as a queer person, like, no, I will not date a Trump supporter. No, it's like, however in your life you feel like you can take power because I don't have a lot of power over things. I'm no one's manager. I'm no one's boss. I'm a worker for a corporation. So what can I do? I can go to protests, but I also know as a brown person, I don't want to put myself in the mosh pit, if you will, because I'm not going to get criminalized or become part of the system. So I expect white bodies to do that. But like, as a queer person, I say like, no, I'm not going to give, like, just as you, like, as I talked about with Sarah Huckabee Sanders and access to public space, like, I won't give people who are Trump supporters access to my, to my space or to my body, right? So it's like, there are so many different forms and levels of protest. And it comes down to like, you assessing your life and what power you have. And how you can send the message that like what these people support is not okay that comes down to like for queer people it might be the thanksgiving dinner table no mom i'm not coming to thanksgiving this year because of what you did like you do not deserve my congeniality at the table um and then or it comes up to if you're nancy pelosi or chuck schumer like you obviously have much more power to be directly to to influence um policy and stuff like that and i think one of the reasons there's so much frustration is because they have immense power right now and they're not using it. So lastly, where can folks find you online? Oh, they can find me on Twitter at Matthew Rodriguez. And my name is Matthew with one T and Rodriguez with a G and a Z. Um, That's probably where I'm most active. I'm also on Instagram, but it's Matthew K as in Kite Rodriguez. And then also if you want to read my writing, I am a staff writer for Into, an LGBTQ magazine, and that's at Into More. M-O-R-E.com. Okay, awesome. I love Into. I really love your work there. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. I hope that um, 
I mean, I really liked the conversation. I hope that you liked it too. I did. I did very much. And I think our listeners will as well. Now, to said listeners, I'm Jordan Valerie, politics editor at Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Support us through our Patreon. Check out our merch and articles at millennialpolitics.co. And subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to hear more discussions with awesome folks like Matthew and Kristen. Thanks for listening.